Mm -hmm. All right, well, thank you, Caleb. Good morning. Um, it's good to be here today. It's my joy and my pleasure to preach the Word of God and to share this time with you. Um, as you guys have said several times, the numbers are a little bit smaller maybe than normal, but this makes it feel like family for me, so it's, it's, uh, it's a good thing. But um, just a few quick things about myself. Um, you know, I'm here today basically just to help fill in and, and give Caleb a little bit of time off. And congratulations on having, I suppose I should congratulate you and not Caleb on having a baby. But um, so congratulations, and uh, we're here to give you guys a little bit of a break, and hopefully it's a good, good season for you. So I'm excited to be here. Um, I've been, uh, I'm part of River City Church, which meets in Fargo, North Dakota. I've been there for about four years. Um, I helped to lead a missional community, or what you guys would consider a community group. Um, and uh, as, as has been mentioned, I've preached a, a couple of times at my church, or maybe heard, I don't, I don't really remember if it was something that uh, somebody said, or if I just overheard it pre-meeting uh, pre with uh, what Shoshana was telling people. But um, I've preached a few times at River City. And I'm starting a seminary online in August uh, through Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. Uh, one of the things I was going to say is I was going to say I feel at home because you guys um, of the bison you guys have. And then I'm an NDSU grad, bison, so I thought maybe it'd be like a familial thing. But then as I was driving in, I was like, is the bison something as Buffalo? Because I keep saying like Buffalo City Church and like Buffalo City Diesel, and I'm just like, is there a difference? Like, I don't know. I guess it's a name means yeah. but what's the, there's, there's not a difference, it's just the same thing. So then I feel like I'm at home. Okay, you're good. All right, well, let's, uh, let's get started. We're going to be in Psalm 92 today, and I think we're going to have stuff up on the screen. Uh, we'll have one slide. It'll we'll have one slide that'll say Psalms. There you I, go. <laughs> uh, my expertise is not IT or technology, and so if you can't read any of it, uh, that's not a technical problem they're having, that's, that's on me. So... Um, but if you don't have a Bible, I think there's some on the table back there. Um, otherwise, I think a lot of you guys probably have some on your phones and stuff as well. Um, but we'll be in Psalm 92. And um, before we get started, one of the things that you'll notice that I'm going uh, to do as I, as I preach is I'm going to reference back to the text uh, quite a bit. We're going to reread parts of the text. And part of the thing that I want to do with that is that I really want this text to soak into our hearts. I want it to be ingrained in our minds, so we're going to continually be pointed back to it, we're going to continuously uh, read parts of it again. So, uh, without further ado, uh, we'll be reading in Psalm chapter 92. A song, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord. For behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree. 
and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Right. Uh, Father, again, we just thank you for this day, Lord, we thank you for the saints of Jamestown that you have brought to be here. Uh, Lord, thank you for encouraging my heart even as we sang and as we prepare to uh, hear the word preached. Uh, Lord, calm, calm my heart. Lord, help me to uh, avoid speaking anything in error, but Lord, help me to bring uh, a word that is fitting, a word that is uh, encouraging and is helpful, um, that you have, have uh, helped me, Lord, by your spirit to prepare for today. Lord, I pray that this text, this psalm, this song for the Sabbath would, would resonate, Lord, in our hearts, that it would settle in uh, to our minds, that it would be something that, uh, even well beyond this service, that's something that we we think about and we ponder. Lord, bless this time. Um, change us, Lord, by your Spirit. Make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name that we pray. Are you a hard worker? I grew up in a hard-working, blue-collar home where my dad worked as a roofer. And I started roofing when I was 14. Unless you're part of OSHA, and then I was 18 and couldn't grow any facial hair. <laughs> but uh, other kids during during the summers would go to you know summer camps, or they'd go to basketball traveling basketball teams, or they'd stay home and play video games with their friends. And meanwhile, I was pulling nails and carrying trash and installing whirly birds and uh, taking off two layer wood shake 1012s in the 90 degree heat. And so it was my own kind of fun, I guess. But uh, now I don't do that anymore. Well, I still do a little bit on the side, but I, I work as a consultant for government contracting. And one of the things that's interesting is that when I talk to my clients, all of which are North Dakota businesses, there seems to be this, this general sense of warmth or, or camaraderie that happens when I tell them about that background, this hardworking blue collar background. And there's something about the Midwest, and I think North Dakota in particular, that we are very proud of our heritage. We're a salt of the earth, tough, hardworking, self-made, self-motivated, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, make it on our own types. And maybe you resonate with that as well. We work and then we usually go home and do more work. And a lot of times our hobbies are not relaxing, they're work. And for vacation, well, if we take one, it's work, you know? I knew a guy one time who would work a 60-hour-a-week uh, job, and then for his vacation, he'd go to the woods and, and chop wood. And it's just one of those things, I think, in our culture where people love to work. Another guy I know, he has an IT job down in the Twin Cities, and for his vacation, he takes his paid time off, and he goes and volunteers, not gets paid, he volunteers to help during harvest season, because he just wants to work. And so there's this, there's this weird, um, I won't call it, maybe it's not weird, but there's this thing in our culture where we, we just work all the time. Um, even last Friday, I took off, I took some PTO, and I went and roofed. I don't know. It's, it's kind of strange. But uh, in thinking about this idea of work, I did some digging, and I found that Americans only use about half of their paid time off. And when they do use it, 61% of them work while they're on vacation anyway. We're a workaholic culture whose identities are so closely tied to what we do and our performance on the job. If you don't believe me, what's the first question you ask when you usually meet someone? 
what do you do? We're gauging each other based, gauging each other's worth based on our work. And as a Midwesterner, I resonate with that workaholic culture. And there's this, there's something to be said for that mentality and that grit, that work ethic. But what I want us to do today is I want us to think about just the opposite. I want us to think about rest. Some of you might be saying, what, what's that? Um, our sermon today is on Psalm 92, as we just read, and it begins with this header, a song for the Sabbath. So what is the Sabbath? Is it Sunday like we observe? Is it Friday night to Saturday night like the Jews observe? Is it just the day where we dress up and go to church? Maybe it's the day where, when the weather's nice, we just go to the lake or we go hunting instead. I want to start by defining this term. The Sabbath is not man's invention. It was instituted by God back in Genesis chapter 2 and then written as a part of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. The punishment for breaking the Sabbath rest was death, Exodus 31. So the Sabbath is a big deal, and one of the contextual questions we should be asking when looking at a heading like this, a song for the Sabbath, is how does this text relate to the Sabbath? What about this passage is indicative of rest? So let's think about these things as we look at our text. Here's a brief overview of where we're going. This text is broken up into four parts. The first part is going to be about giving praise to God. The second part is about the wicked and observing how they flourish and where they end up. The third part is about the righteous and their flourishing and how that's different from the wicked. And finally, the fourth part is about understanding who is wicked, who is righteous, and how we can rest in the work of our great God. So let's start at the beginning and we'll look at giving praise to God. So this is going to be verses 1 to 5. The psalm starts with this statement. It is good to give praise. Sorry, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. It is good to give thanks. How often do you praise the Lord or give him thanks? When was the last time that you woke up and thanked God that he kept your heart beating through the night? That he kept your lungs breathing? When you think about the simple things like the roof over your head, do you thank him for his provision of shelter? When you say grace for your meals, are you genuine in your thanks? Or is it just lip service? How about your kids? Or your spouse? Or your job? Or even your salvation? Do you thank God for them? If I can be honest with you, I would confess that my thanks and my praise for God is not as it ought to be. And maybe your heart is like mine and you are inclined to overlook the provision of God or to see the things that you have as the result of your own hard work. So even though our hearts are inclined to see things this way, it's not as though we don't have things to be thankful for. God's works are infinite, from the creation of a single molecule to an entire galaxy. He creates and sustains all things. Day after day after day, his works are on display. Not just his creation, but his character. He ought to be praised for who he is. His very nature, I would argue, demands praise. He is almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sufficient, all-satisfying, all-sustaining, all-sovereign. We ought to praise God for all that he has powerfully done and all that he uniquely is. 
and yet it's so easy for us to be an ungrateful people, sorely lacking in praise for God. It is good for us to have reminders like this psalm, especially on the Sabbath, to say, look at the works of our great God and worship Him. If you're familiar with the origin of the first Sabbath back in Genesis, you will know that God worked six days, and then on the seventh day, the Sabbath, He rested and delighted in His creation. So while there are an untold number of things that we could praise God for, I want to turn our attention back to the psalm, and I want to think about this. I want you to think about this question with me: What works in particular are being observed? Look with me at some of the language that the psalmist uses. He says, "Your works are great, and they make me glad." And in verse three, he says, "I'm going to paraphrase it: Bust out the lute, the lute, and the harp, and the lyre." Get the band together because we are going to sing praises and we are going to worship this great God. But what works is he talking about that elicit this sort of praise? What works are so great, and yet despite their greatness in verse 6, says that the stupid man cannot know, nor the fool understand. You would think that works that are that great could be understood even by the fool. But you see, although our God is great and deserves worship for all that he does and all of who he is, not everyone worships him. So let's examine what the psalmist writes concerning the wicked in verses 6 to 11. I'll read it again. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord. For behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. You've probably heard the phrase, nice guys finish last. And there's this observation that the wicked prosper, as we see in verse 7. But it's counterintuitive for us because we don't feel like that's how it ought to be. Our logic goes like this. If I'm obedient and I'm following the rules, then I should win. I should end up on top. And that those who cheat and those who break the rules, well, they should get the short end of the stick. But the psalmist says that the wicked sprout like grass and flourish. We might use this phrase. They grow like a weed. We see this all the time if we look around us. Greed, selfishness, and pride propel people to the top of the world. Think of how many people excel in business, sports, and dare we even say politics, by cheating and stealing and lying, deceiving and backstabbing. Oh no, especially not for politicians. Wickedness seems to be the way up. Take one example with me, and it might, become, it might come as a little bit of a shock, but Tiger Woods. He's one of the most accomplished golfers in history. He was ranked number one golfer in the world for a record 683 weeks over the course of his career. He was a PGA Player of the Year 11 times. He won 14 majors and 79 PGA Tour events, and in the process accumulated a net worth of $700 million, according to a Google search I did. All of this success despite being a serial adulterer and someone who does not acknowledge the true God because of his Buddhist faith. 
it seems like the wicked's prosperity is so much more attainable than it is is so much more attainable than it is for good people like us. We have this false underlying belief in karma, whether we admit it or not. We think that good things should happen to good people, and bad things should happen to bad people. But in this life, that's not how it works. See from the text or a simple observation of the world around you. The wicked, those who do not acknowledge God as Lord, oftentimes have great, prosperous, healthy lives, while the righteous could die unexpectedly of cancer at 23. Where is the justice in this? Do you ever find yourself asking, how is this fair? If we're honest, there are even times where we wish we could trade places with them, because we covet what they have. I would urge you, don't do it. Because here is what the foolish and stupid in our text do not understand. It's all an illusion. It's illusory. What I mean by that when I say it is that prosperity isn't real. The money, the fame, the power, all the worldly things that seem so enticing are temporary. They may be for this life, but they are not for eternity. Their flourishing is finite and fleeting. And like the grass that they are compared to, they will wither. Look at the end of verse 7. They are doomed to destruction forever. This is half of what the psalmist is rejoicing over. Remember, we're talking about what is the psalmist praising God for in this passage. This is half of it. They are doomed. But it doesn't seem like that when we look at the world. It seems like they're just going along with their lives and they're uh, doing just fine. But why are they doomed? Look at verse 8. It's because our great God is on high forever. He is in control, and he is on the judgment seat. The psalmist is rejoicing because although it seems for the time that the wicked, time being that the wicked have the better life, and maybe the upper hand over the righteous, they are doomed to destruction forever. Verse 8, and they will perish and be scattered. Verse 9, he is resting and rejoicing in the, in the perfect justice of our God. Not every wrong will be righted in this life. But the psalmist's hope is it lies in the truth that it'll be righted eventually. Notice the language by looking at verse 10. What's going on here? It seems kind of out of place. It's talking about the destruction of the wicked and then being scattered, and then all of a sudden he says, But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. And then it goes back to talking about the destruction of the wicked. What in the world does this mean? Does this mean anything to anybody here? If I were to say, oh, you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox to you, you wouldn't be like, oh, wow, how, how nice, that's great. You'd be like, dude, get away from me. <laughs> and so let me explain this in case you find yourself in this unlikely situation. The language of the horn and the oil are symbolic. The horn is symbolic of strength and the oil is symbolic of refreshment. The psalmist is in the midst of praising God for his justice and is in essence saying, to see my, to see my God work out his eternal judgments on the wicked strengthens and refreshes me. Think about that. Does God's justice strengthen and refresh you? You see, God cannot and will not let the evil flourish forever, but punishes justly. That strengthens me, because I know that though evil persists and that wicked flourishes in this world, I know that it's only temporary. 
that refreshes me because I know that my God is watching from on high and he is a just judge. How good is it to know that justice will be served and to believe that all wrongs will be made right and every evil punished. And notice too that the psalmist doesn't just comment on the enemies of God, he transitions and personalizes it by calling them my enemies and my assailants in verse 11. There's a personal nature to the misdeeds of the wicked. We know that when the wicked do evil, it's first and foremost an offense to God. But sometimes the wicked also commit evil against us. It is more understandable then why the psalmist would be refreshed and strengthened by this justice that is taking place if it's not just against some wicked person, but against someone who's committing wickedness at his expense. Can you relate to this? What evils have been done to you? What hurts, abuse, sin, and wickedness have you experienced at the hands of others? Has someone gone behind your back at work or stolen your idea and been rewarded for it? Have you had a relationship where you felt used or abandoned and the other person's life seems to be unaffected? Or parents, have you had kids get bullied or mistreated by other students but there seems to be no repercussions? Listen to this. All the evil done will be paid for, and all of it will be dealt with. Though the wicked flourish like grass, yet they will be destroyed. We can have confidence in this, and rest in this, because our God is on high, and he is working. This should strengthen and refresh us. We should rejoice with the psalmist at this truth. The wicked may flourish, but not forever. God is on high forever, and from there he can see it all, and we rejoice because he is just and his judgments are true. The wicked will not go unpunished, and all their unrighteous disease, disease deeds will one day be uncovered, and a price will have to be paid. Psalm 37, verses 1 and 2, another psalm, reminds us of this using similar grass-like language. It says, Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. We shouldn't worry when we see the wicked thriving and succeeding in this life. Instead, on this Sabbath, let us rejoice and let us rest in the fact that our God is working on our behalf to bring about justice. Their days are numbered and the wrath of God is coming. Contrast this now with the second half of why the psalmist is rejoicing. On the one side, we have the wicked, and we have just heard about what will happen to them. But what about the righteous? Which brings us to our third point. While the wicked are compared to the flourishing of the grass, the righteous are said to flourish like cedars and palm trees. The Holman Bible Dictionary says that cedars were symbolic of royal power, wealth, strength, and growth. And the palm trees are associated with beauty and prosperity and were characteristic of fruitful oases. Both of these trees are in the evergreen family, so their leaves do not wither. Remember the wicked being compared to grass, while the scripture reminds us that the grass is here today and then tomorrow gone. Contrast this with the cedars, which are strong and enduring, and the palm trees, which are hardy and prosperous. There is a dichotomy there between the image of the wicked being like grass, which is temporary and weak, and the righteous being like cedars and palm trees, which are prosperous in comparison. 
The growth of the righteous is not superficial, but everlasting. A piece of grass might shoot up in no time, but it perishes just as quickly. Whereas a tree might seem to never grow, but in the end is sturdy and hardy and enduring. Do not be mistaken, the righteous do flourish, but it is by the grace of God. They are planted in the house of God. Notice that word, planted. The righteous do not just grow or appear. There is action denoted on the part of God to plant and by extension to care for the righteous. You will also note where the righteous are planted. They're planted in the house of God. That seems like kind of a strange place for a tree. But it shows that the righteous are close to God and under the watchful eye of the Lord who is their planter. They should expect heavenly nourishment and spiritual flourishing then. What benefit is it for the believer to flourish in this life and not the next? How much more should the righteous expect to grow and flourish for an eternal, not a temporal end? When thinking about the difference between these two, I am reminded of a text from Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, which says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we are counted with the righteous, our treasure is not of this world, because this world is not our home. While we may be blessed with good things in this life, this is not the end. The wicked may prosper in this life, but this is the end of their flourishing. Let me ask you, what is the goal of prospering, if only for this life? Paul says of Christians, if only for this life we have hope, then we ought to be pitied above all men. Paul said that regarding Christ's resurrection, but the same could be applied to the wicked. If their hope in their health, wealth, and prosperity is only for this life, then they ought to be pitied above all men. The righteous under God's care will flourish, and the psalmist doesn't waste words when he says that they are ever full of sap and green, and that they will bear fruit in old age. The psalmist is certain of this because the strength and perseverance of the righteous does not rest in the righteous themselves, but in the God who sustains them. Young believers in this room, be encouraged that your growth is sustained by the providence of God. You will flourish, and you will endure the trials of life. There's a saying about this from Matthew Henry's commentary on this passage regarding the palm trees. He says that the more they are pressed down, the more they flourish. Older believers, be encouraged that your best years are not behind you. You will bear fruit even in old age. God's work to grow you and sustain you is a testament to his faithfulness. Let that be known and never cease to tell others of the greatness of our God. We have talked about the wicked and the righteous. Both flourish but in different ways and for different times. One will be doomed to destruction forever and the other to flourish in the courts of God forever. The thing we haven't clarified is who is righteous and who is wicked. Furthermore, what about the righteous makes them different and they're flourishing than the wicked? This brings us to our final point. Notice the psalmist doesn't say and doesn't say in the beginning, I praise you God for my works are great, for my thoughts are deep, for I myself am righteous. Look at the language starting in verse 4. He says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. 
At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Verse 10. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. And finally, verse 15 tells us why the righteous flourish as they do. Is it a testament to their own strength, their own efforts, their own goodness? No. Verse 15. They flourish to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. It is our rest in God's work. On this Sabbath day, we remember that it is the Lord who judges and the Lord who justifies. He keeps his own for his name's sake and as a testament to his uprightness. So how do you know if you are counted among the wicked or the righteous? You see, Scripture says that there is none righteous, not even one. God is just. He always does what is right. He is also holy, not just perfectly pure, but totally different and separate from sin and sinners. In contrast, you and I are by nature counted amongst the wicked because we have failed to keep the law of God. You may be here this morning and you think that your work is going to save you or that your righteous deeds are enough to let you into heaven. That's not the way that God works. Based on even our best works, we ought to be destroyed, scattered, and perish with the wicked. There is only one hope that we have, and it is at the heart of this Sabbath text. God has worked that we might rest. The only way we can be counted among the righteous is if our sin is taken away, and no work of our own can do that. We are incapable of saving ourselves no matter how much we work. Here is the good news of the gospel. God sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life that we couldn't and die the death our sins deserved. Three days after this death, he rose again to show that he had conquered sin and death. It is only by resting in the finished work of our resurrected Jesus and believing and trusting in his blood alone that cleanses us from our sins and that we can be counted among the righteous. Do you trust in him today? Do you believe in him today? Are you resting in his finished work today? I'm reading through Deuteronomy, and in chapters 8 and 9, Moses reminds the people of Israel, not of your own strength in chapter 8, and not of your own righteousness in chapter 9, did, did you get here? It is the same with us. Our own works didn't bring about our righteousness, and our own righteousness didn't bring about the favor of God. On this Sabbath, rest in the finished work of our God and in the person of Jesus Christ. Believers in the room, don't get caught trying to work for your salvation. It is already yours in Christ. Rest in him and rejoice in his work on your behalf. Non-believers, I urge you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. If this is you today, please come talk to me after we're done. I'd love to talk more about this with you. Flourishing for this life is not worth the wrath of the next. Come to the cross, trust in Christ, rest in Christ, who is our Sabbath rest, trusting in the finished work of our great God. Let's pray.